0: Hi guys, and welcome back to the book review podcast today. This is Unknown Friends, Season 2, Episode 16, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, and I hope you are even half as excited about today's book review as I am. Um, I'm just ditching all other preliminaries and getting right to it because there is so much to say about this book, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I promised you last week that if you haven't yet read Frankenstein, you will be surprised by its contents. Uh, And I do hope you decide to read it if you haven't already this classic novel is just over two centuries old now and it certainly deserves its place in the canon of great english literature Um, what i think is equally surprising about the book besides its contents is the author who created it let me tell you a little bit about mary shelley she was not your typical 19th century woman she came from a family that had little regard for the religion or standard morals of the era, and sadly, Mary certainly lived up to the legacy of her parents. So I will start from the beginning. Mary was the middle of five siblings, but among them all, no two siblings had both of the same parents. Okay, let that sink in. So here's what happened. Before Mary Shelley's birth, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who is famous for writing A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, she had an illegitimate daughter named Fanny when she was in her 30s, having never married. Um, She then actually tried to commit suicide a couple of times after Fanny's birth, but a few years later, she got into a relationship with the philosopher William Godwin, Um, eventually found out that she was expecting, and so the two of them decided to get married. And the child that was born was Mary, the eventual author of Frankenstein, uh, born in 1797. But her mother died as a result of childbirth complications, and so William Godwin was left with her first child, Fanny, and his own daughter, Mary, to raise. A couple years later, he married his neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont, Um, and yes, this is already the third Mary in our story. And this woman already had two children of her own by two different fathers, uh, neither of whom had been her husband. She had never been married at all. So that brings the tally up to four siblings, and then when William Godwin and his second wife had a son together, um, that child was the fifth sibling in the household. So All of this will explain a lot about Mary Shelley's own path in life, uh, because unfortunately the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So Mary Shelley grew up with some good in her life, but also a lot of confusion um, and tension in the home. She did not like her stepmother at all, so that didn't help matters. Her father wanted her to be given a good education, uh, better than most girls would have received at that time. But the family was often in debt, um, so Mary was not able to get a phenomenal education. But her father saw to it that she read a lot and was introduced to the radical politics, which he espoused. And she also got to know some of the progressive thinkers and writers who belonged to William Godwin's circle. And one friend, which the family came in contact with when Mary was 16, was the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was five years her senior. He was already married and had one child with a second on the way, but at this point he was estranged from his wife and, well, he didn't really think much of the institution of marriage anyway. Uh, He was an atheist, a political radical, um, and an advocate of free love. Um, And frankly, just throughout his life, he was... Uh, mentally and emotionally very unstable. Anyway, long story short, Mary elopes to Europe with Percy shortly before her 17th birthday, and she takes along her stepsister, Claire, who incidentally um, later becomes involved with Lord Byron, another radical poet and friend of Percy Shelley. So a huge mess ensues. Uh, They all go traipsing around Europe together hobnobbing with folks of the like of of Lord Byron, writing, reading, discussing various literary and philosophical things, and having very little money at their disposal all the while, in part because Mary's father, William Godwin, understandably, though perhaps hypocritically, um, declined to give them any support because of their current uh, lifestyle. Well, then Mary's oldest sibling, her half-sister Fanny, um, committed suicide in 1816, and Percy Shelley's wife also drowned herself later that same year. Well, then 20 days after the suicide of his first wife, Percy and Mary finally decided to get married, which helps to reconcile Mary and her, her disapproving father. Although, might I add, Mary was carrying her third child by Percy Shelley when they married. They ultimately had four children together, but only the last um, survived childhood. Anyway, this is only part of the story. I I am not even going to go into all the different relationships Percy Shelley had and just the mess that their life was uh, before and after he and Mary got married. But suffice it to say, Mary was not a happy young woman. She had a hard life partly because of her choices, um, but she also just experienced unexpected tragedy over and over again. The loss of her mother when she was just an infant, and the loss of her own eldest three children at very young ages. And then the most shocking change to her life happened in 1822, when she was just 24 years old and Percy Shelley died and left her a young widow, he and a friend were testing a new sailboat and were caught unprepared in a storm off the coast of Italy, and it was days later before their bodies washed ashore. After that, Mary never remarried. She spent the rest of her life writing books and promoting the poetry of her late husband, as well as raising their only surviving child, a son named Percy after his father, Um, And she also spent time caring for her aging father, William, until his death in 1836. Mary only lived to the age of 53. Her son and eventually her daughter-in-law helped take care of her, but she suffered from illness near the end of her life and ultimately passed away in 1851, probably as the result of a brain tumor. So this is the woman who gave us Frankenstein and several other novels, too, although they're much less well-known, as well as some biographies and travel books um, and, and other works of nonfiction. But Frankenstein was her first novel and obviously the book that made her literary reputation. And she was remarkably young when she wrote it. She started it when she was just 18 and was 20 by the time it was published. Really incredible. So what inspired her to write Frankenstein in the first place? Well, she was obviously surrounded by literary and philosophical influences. Um, Both her parents were writers with strong political opinions. And then Percy Shelley and his circle of friends brought Mary into this sphere where everyone was discussing big ideas and challenging conventional beliefs. And they were all writing down their ideas in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. And it was the summer of 1816 a few months before Mary and Percy had actually married, but when they were together with her stepsister Claire and with Lord Byron at his villa in Geneva, and they were passing time by reading ghost stories together, when Lord Byron suggested that each of them should try to write their own ghost story, and they would compare and see who wrote the best one. It took Mary a few days to come up with an idea, but eventually, thanks to a conversation about galvanism and and the question of what makes things living, she hit on this image of a scientist attempting to create a living being. And from there, the idea for Frankenstein was born. Initially, she was just going to write a short story from the idea, but it grew into a full-fledged novel with encouragement from Percy Shelley, and it was ultimately published in early 1818, anonymously at first, with a preface written by Percy himself, which helped um, give it traction initially. It did not take long, however, for the word to get out that Mary, daughter of the well-known William Godwin, was the author, and while some critics dismissed her work, it was almost instantly popular with the public and has remained so. Um, Just five years after its publication, it had already been turned into a play titled Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein. And we know how it has become a cultural phenomenon and has spawned not only dozens of film and theater adaptations, but also character and plot archetypes, Um, It was one of the very earliest works of science fiction, and it helped create both the character type of an obsessed scientist, and also the storyline of a creator whose creation uh, surprises and overpowers him. Now, it is fascinating how distant our current imagination of Frankenstein is from Mary Shelley's original. In the last century, we have seen uh, example after example of horror movies that take the name Frankenstein or claim to be retellings of the book. Uh, We recognize Frankenstein the monster with a a bolt through his neck as a sort of symbol, a, a standard figure of the monster or horror film genre. Well, here's the first thing I have to break to you. Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. In Mary Shelley's book, and in Faithful retellings, of which there are few to my knowledge, Frankenstein is the name of the creator, the obsessed scientist, Victor Frankenstein. He's, he's Swiss. And the monster he creates has no name at all. Also, another thing popularly associated with the Frankenstein story is uh, the idea that the scientist has an assistant traditionally a hunchbacked assistant named Igor. This character has no source in Mary Shelley's novel. It is completely an invention. Um, It actually originated very early after the publication of Frankenstein. In that first theatrical adaptation in 1823, uh, we see an added character of Victor Frankenstein's bumbling assistant, although his name then was Fritz, and it was only in later versions that he became Igor. So it's crazy just how other people latched onto Mary Shelley's novel and used it in so many different ways of their own. In other words, we must not judge the original by its wide variety of offshoots. Mary Shelley's novel stands on its own and and needs to be evaluated on its own merits, without reference to um, all the things that happened later to its story and characters. So I will now give you a quick rundown of the true story, Um, the story this, this troubled but brilliant young woman wrote before she was 20 years old. So, the opening chapters will take you off your guard right from the start because the first character we meet is not uh, Victor Frankenstein or any relation or friend of his, but a young, adventurous Captain Robert Walton who is on an expedition to the North Pole. And the novel is technically, another surprise, an epistolary novel, a novel composed of letters from Captain Walton to his sister back in England. So we start with him writing to his sister about the progress of his voyage north, and then he tells her that he has met this strange, uh, emaciated, wandering man and taken him on board his ship to feed him and nurse him back to health. And this stranger's name turns out to be Victor Frankenstein. Well, then Captain Walton records Victor telling him the story of his life And that story forms most of the rest of the novel. So Victor goes into great detail about his past life, his family, his upbringing, his education. As a young man, Victor was fascinated by science, uh, natural philosophy, especially chemistry. And he was ambitious and wanted to discover the source of life. In fact, he wanted to learn how to imbue a thing with life how to create a living creature. Well, obviously this is theoretical, it's it's fantastical, but in order to appreciate the story of Frankenstein, we have to accept the premise that he does, after many months of intense study, discover the secret of giving life to inanimate matter. So he decides to create a being, a human being, essentially, though Victor kind of wants his creation to be superhuman. He constructs it to be bigger and better than normal humans. So he, well, he collects human body parts, sorry, this is gross, from graves and and dissection labs, and from them he tediously, meticulously puts together a man's body. And then, uh, voila, he does whatever the scientific trick is to impart life, and he creates a sentient being. But as soon as his creation comes to life, Victor is horrified by what he has done. It's honestly not clear in the book why his feelings do an immediate 180. Really, the only thing he describes in detail at this point of the story is how unexpectedly ugly the creature is. Um, Victor had tried to put together parts that would form a strong and, and beautiful whole, but he's not as good a creator as he thought he would be. The creature is indeed superhumanly strong, but apparently his appearance is so ugly and unnatural that it strikes terror and disgust in the heart of any person who sees it, including its own maker, Victor himself. So then Victor, with astounding clear-headedness, runs away and tries to go to sleep and basically hopes that when he wakes up, his creature will have magically disappeared. So there's a a responsible creator for you. Anyway, long story short, Victor's horrified reaction to his creation um, causes his creature to flee, and Victor doesn't know where it's gone, but he is just happy to not have to deal with it which is frankly ridiculous and and so irresponsible. But anyway, that is part of the point. So Victor is exhausted from his long, hard months of work and so overcome by this last experience that he falls ill and his best friend, Henry Clerval, has to take care of him and it takes him several months to recover. Well, at the end of that time, he gets a letter from back home saying that his youngest brother, William, has been murdered. Victor is shocked and and rushes home, and when he arrives, he has a glimpse at one point of some huge human-like figure in the distance, and he feels sure that it is the monster he created, and he feels just as sure that the creature killed his little brother. Well, then a whole mess ensues in which um, an innocent party is accused of the murder and condemned for it, and Victor feels horrible but can't do anything about it. In the end, he is eaten up with guilt and goes off wandering through the mountains hoping to forget the things he's done and experienced, and also half hoping to meet his creation and destroy it. Well, I won't go much further into the storyline, but we're getting close to the middle of the book at this point, and this, I think, is the most fascinating part. Victor does meet with his creation, and the monster gets a chance to tell its side of the story. And this is the heart of the book, both thematically and structurally. We actually have layers of stories in this novel, concentric rings. So Captain Walton narrates the beginning and the ending, and within his letters, we read Victor's narrative about his own life. And then within Victor's narrative, we have this central encounter with his creature, who in the heart of the novel gets several chapters in which we hear his narrative, the story of his first months of life and and what he learned and did and why. His earliest memories are murky, sort of like a baby's memories would be, but eventually as he became more and more aware of himself and of his surroundings, he quickly learned that his appearance terrified anyone he met, so he hid from the world. He found shelter eventually near a lonesome little house in the forest where a poor, good-hearted family lived The creature took care never to be seen by them, but he watched and listened to everything they did. And over time, he figured out language. He figured out how to speak and even how to read. And he got a hold of a few books and read them. Paradise Lost, Among Them, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Uh, Anyway, he learns more and more about both human beings in general and himself, and how he is different from everyone else and rejected by everyone. And after being feared and despised by everyone he meets, he becomes fiercely angry at the world, angry at his creator. And so now he confronts him and demands that Victor do his duty by his creation. But what the duty of a creator is to his creature is a complicated question, and suffice it to say that Victor and the monster don't see eye to eye on this topic, and conflict ensues. I shouldn't continue any further telling how the storyline goes, or I will get into spoiler territory, so I'll leave you on that cliffhanger. But let's talk briefly about this book's themes, which are really what make the story so compelling and also show just how deeply thoughtful a person uh, Mary Shelley had to be. So, Paradise Lost, let's start there. Paradise Lost is essentially the English epic. Uh, So in the 1600s, John Milton wrote this masterpiece, somewhat in the tradition of the ancient epics of Homer and Virgil, but his work is biblical. Uh, telling the story of the temptation by Satan of Adam and Eve and their ultimate banishment from the Garden of Eden, from paradise. And this epic poem is deeply present in the novel Frankenstein. Mary Shelley even quotes from it on the title page. She quotes Adam saying, Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? So creator and creation. Obviously, this is a central theme in Frankenstein. But I think people often water it down and say that Shelley was just concerned with, you know, the danger of science and and of going too far with taking nature into our own hands. Yes, she is concerned with that. But much more, she's actually asking philosophical and theological questions about our role as human creatures, and God's role as creator? What should the relationship be between us? What are the duties of a maker, or you could say a father, to a creature or a son or daughter? And vice versa, what are the duties of creation to its creator? The maker has taken life into his own hands. Is he therefore accountable for all his creature's actions? Does he have the responsibility to make his creation happy, to make it good, to love it? Is it the creature's fault if it is imperfect, or is that the maker's fault? Do you see what I'm saying? These are these are deep questions. Frankenstein the novel is is not a horror story. It does use a fantastical and somewhat horrific premise to explore profound questions about moral responsibility. And Paradise Lost is a fascinating comparison and contrast for the monster's own experience. So he reads it, and he identifies with the character Adam, but he also identifies with the character Satan. Unlike God in Paradise Lost, Victor Frankenstein rejected his own creation immediately without even trying to foster any kind of father-son relationship, as probably he should have, And his creature, as a result, feels angry, feels absolutely alone, and feels the desire for revenge, somewhat like Satan does in Milton's poem. Now, remember, Mary Shelley was not a Christian. She was most likely an atheist. I don't think we know for certain, but her husband, Percy, was an outspoken atheist. So it's not entirely clear to me what conclusions she wants us to make about God, Um, if in her mind there even was such a being. It sort of seems like she wants to criticize God, and yet if she doesn't even believe he exists, that doesn't really make sense. So it's open to debate somewhat. But that's one of the things that is so powerful about this book. A lot of its ideas are open to debate. It introduces many complex issues Um, offers pros and cons on both sides of the issues, and it doesn't always offer a clear opinion about the answers. So I've talked a lot about the creator-creature relationship it's exploring. Another thing the story is interested in is moral development, with or without a god in the picture. The monster essentially makes the claim that it would have been good if it had first been happy. Hmm. Unfortunately, that claim won't hold up very well under close inspection, but it's still a question worth considering. Does happiness follow virtue, or virtue happiness? What about when good intentions lead to bad consequences? Who's to blame? What about when you're not being honest with yourself about your motives, which both Victor and the monster experience quite a lot? What about when different duties seem to conflict with each other? How do you discern what the right course is in complex situations? Is it our duty to give up our own happiness in order to do what's right? Or are happiness and virtue ever mutually exclusive? There's just, I can't even cover all the questions and and side questions this story opens up. There is so much here, and I'm running out of time. There's also a lot of other fascinating source material Mary Shelley was drawing from when she wrote this. Not only Paradise Lost, but um, her novel is in conversation with the ancient Greek legends of Prometheus, who I don't have time to discuss, but he actually shows up in the novel's subtitle. The book's full name is Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus. The novel also draws a lot of imagery and thematic material from the romantic poet Samuel Coleridge's long poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. Uh, Themes of guilt and wandering and the strange necessity people feel to tell their stories, these all uh, connect to The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. So, long story short, this is a meaty book. It's not a perfect book, but for being written by an 18, 19-year-old girl, I mean, wow, it's honestly mind-blowing. And yes, there is a monster, people die, it is a tragic story, but really there's nothing graphic, um, honestly, nothing even really scary. I mean, the monster learned how to speak and even how to behave from reading Milton, so he is incredibly eloquent and in many ways very civilized, except for, you know, the killing people thing. But but truly, the book is very appropriate for high school students and older, and I highly recommend reading it. It offers so much that makes us think, even though many of us would not agree with the author's conclusions, it's still challenging, and despite its flaws, it's incredibly well-crafted. A very significant contribution to the great conversation. I have read it at least three times, and I get more and more out of it with each reread. I see thematic patterns and symbols I've missed, interesting contradictions in Victor's character that are revealing and thought-provoking, and so many allusions to other great works of literature which add depth to Mary Shelley's own story and characters. So yes, please give this classic a chance, despite the problems of its many spinoffs, And if you do read it, I would love to hear what you think. You can message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon to share your thoughts or questions, and you'll find those links in the episode description. So thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed this review. Next week, we're going a very different direction with a mid-20th century novel by the British writer Muriel Spark, who incidentally was a big fan of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. I will be discussing Spark's novel, The Girls of Slender Means, a very short book, a novella, really, set in London at the end of World War II. I found this to be an odd little novel. Muriel Spark is new to me, and she certainly has a unique approach to storytelling. So that will be our topic next week, so be sure to tune in on Wednesday for our review of The Girls of Slender Means. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and the plays and skits I write at my website, KittyWamProductions.com. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week.